Welcome to the program, and it is the inaugural episode of Restoring the Soul Radio. Thanks for taking time to be with me today, wherever this program finds you in your world. Today I'm talking with author and speaker William Paul Young, who wrote a little book for his wife and kids in hopes of explaining the miraculous redemption in his broken life. Little did he know that this book would go on to become a worldwide phenomenon selling over 20 million copies around the globe. That book, of course, is The Shack. My conversation with Paul was totally unscripted and open-ended with each of his comments, making me want to ask five more questions. I wish we had had more time. So, I think you'll be encouraged and stretched by Paul's heart and mind as you listen in. You're listening to Restoring the Soul Radio with Michael John Cusick. Thank you for taking time to talk with me today. You're welcome. Uh, I want to talk initially about the shack and then just, just jump in wherever this goes. Perfect. But uh, you have talked about how you made 15 photocopies of this novel that you wrote for your children uh-huh. and it turned into this worldwide bestseller, 20 million copies. Why would you write uh, something so rich and profound and, and potentially disturbing to give to your kids? One, they know me. Two, Kim asked me to do it in terms of putting in one place how I think as a gift. I've always written poetry, songs, and short stories, and she's always loved what I wrote. And my friends and family, they, all, they, they always loved it, and it was just a way to give gifts. And so when Kim said, would you someday, as a gift for our kids, put in one place how you think, because you think outside the box, I thought, huh. Oh. Okay, I didn't know what that meant, and it took me like four years to feel like I was healthy enough to do it. So I'm, I'm trying inside story to tell my kids by creating space that they can hear for themselves about the things that matter to me, about my journey about God, about my journey about myself, about my relationship with their mother, you know, and... And the issue of God at the center of this was so critical for me because if he's not good all the time, I'm done, Uh, you know? And I grew up with a God who wasn't good all the time. That is, the way God related to me was dependent on how good I was or how much magic I knew or what words I had or what agreements that I made with propositional truth or something. Hmm. And uh, so I'm saying, let me tell you, not about the God that I grew up with, but the God that actually healed my heart so the shack is fiction but it's autobiographical yeah see and this is the beauty of fiction fiction sneaks past our watchful dragons fiction creates more space than it uses fiction has a respect for the for the person who reads or listens that they can hear for themselves and and so uh, people i tell people all the time no this is a true story it's just not real Hmm. right Hmm. Because parables are true, mm-hmm. but they're not real. Right. But they're true. And so there is an element of being able to unfold true inside story because everybody is a story. And so we naturally have affinity for story because we are one. Mm-hmm. And therefore, this creative, and that's true with songs, you know, people listening to you will know music has found a way inside past my watchful dragons and. And, Bruce Coburn. Oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Coburn, best. Best at sneaking past my watchful dragons. Hmm. Yeah. So I've heard you say elsewhere that, that part of the story of your autobiography involved a necessary dismantling of your life. Tell me about that. Yeah. 
You know, I was telling someone today that that the work is worth it, but I would never want to do it again. And um, because the dismantling part is so hard and terrifying, you know, because you have to be able to let somebody else into that space and help you undo it. And and so I'm a I'm a religious kid, a missionary kid, evangelical fundamental Christian missionary kid, preacher's kid, firstborn, the whole shebang. And um, and so, you know, with the kind of damage I had growing up with the sexual abuse and with a difficult father and always shifted out of any, any sense of belonging anywhere, I, I, I was always a new world and let's try again. And addictive behaviors that came out of that kind of damage that I kept repressed and I became a performer. And so, you know, you keep pre uh, presenting a, a performance and a persona, you live from the outside in because you feel like you got nothing on the inside to live out from. And so the question is about how do I please? How do I please you? How do I please God? How do I please my dad? How do I please? And when it starts to fall apart, you just go somewhere else and try again. And eventually it's exhausting and you just get done and you have to deal with it or, or die. How long of a process was that for you, the dismantling? <laughs> the dismantling process happened in about 30 seconds. The initial shock dismantle. Um, because my, my facade had to come down. And the trigger for the facade coming down was a phone call from Kim, who we have now been married more than 35 years. And, and, um, and I get a phone call from her. In, uh, I'm 38 years old, or Matthew's born, who's our sixth child. And she gives me a phone call with one sentence, and the one sentence is, I'm waiting for you at your office, and I know. Mm. And what she knew was I was in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. So the trigger for the collapse of the facade was the fact that I had to face something that was absolutely contrary to everything that I espoused to. Mm. You know, no pun intended. And, um, and so it's like, all right, so my choice is now clear. I'm 38. I'm exhausted maintaining the persona and everything else. So either I need, I'm going to face Kim or kill myself. Those are my two options. I had the option to run, but at that point, I'm, it's like, where am I going to run that I'm not going to drag me along? And I'm just, I don't even know who I am anymore. So, uh, you know, there's all bits and pieces of that, but that started a therapeutic relationship with uh, somebody I found in the yellow pages of all places. Hmm. Um, that was my way to let go of control. Kim did not demand that. She was, she literally took me apart. And I, th and at one point in the conversation with her, when I drove across town and decided to face her, and she'd already ripped up my office pretty good, mm. you know. And uh, and I walked into someone whose entire understanding of the world had been shattered, right? Because she didn't. I had never let her in. I'd never let her inside my history, inside my addictions, nothing, mm. right? So she, everything that she thought was true is suddenly suspect, rightfully so. And at some point in her first few hours of fury, which thankfully I'm, I'm married to a woman who is not meek and mild and submitted. So you knew where she stood. Oh my gosh. And she, the love of God was wrapped inside the wrath of God. Or the wrath of God was wrapped inside the love of God. 
Mm. Right. And part of what saved my life was the intensity of her and the long-term intensity of her fury. That helped. So it you weren't let off the hook right not, away? Or? Oh, no, no. And, and, and for her and I to heal took 11 years. And, and that not only healed the relationship, but that, it sounds like that just submerged you into this, this way of having to live in grace that has given you what you now believe and what came through in the shack. Yeah, and I'd seen pieces and bits of it historically because it's not like we're blind to the goodness of God. But we always reframe it inside of our what we're used to or what we know. You know, we reconfigure Jesus so he fits inside our paradigm. Mm. And I'd seen and I glimpsed and I tasted of it, and I tried to keep it locked inside the intellectual box because anything below my neck was absolutely shattered. Mm. Mm. Right? So I had this huge gap between my head and my heart. And disassociative skills, survival mechanisms, whatever. And the thing that happened when my world came down and the thing that I understood about hitting the bottom, because I did, and the evidence of it was I didn't kill myself. Because to me, suicide is not hitting the bottom. It is the last way to run away before you have to face your crap. And I did, I hit the bottom. I, I, I didn't kill myself. But the second thing was that I owned it. I didn't, I didn't point fingers at my abuse in my childhood. I didn't point fingers and say, well, you know, I've got some justification for this. No, look what I did. I didn't just betray Kim. I betrayed my children. I betrayed my friends. I betrayed the woman. I betrayed her husband. I betrayed their eight children. Mm. And then it just spills out from there. And there's nowhere to go with that. There is no way to go where to go. And the second thing I did was I let go of control. And how I did that was I opened the yellow pages, started with the A's under counseling. And I, my eyes stopped at Agape Youth and Family Services. It had the word Agape in there. And if I was desperate for the love of God somehow to be inside this mess. Hmm. And it said in their box, it said specializing in sexual abuse histories. Hmm. So I called them up. I went in there, made an appointment, sat down, Byron did the intake, and then Byron said, I got the guy for you, I think, but you can decide. And I sat in front of Scott Mitchell and for the first time in my life said to another human being, can you help me? Meaning the first time you saw a need for another person enough to ask for help. And I wasn't smart enough. Wow. I wasn't smarter than the person I was sitting across. Wow. Right? At that point, I've hit the bottom. So it's like, and, and Scott's. Scott listens to me and he says, yeah, I can help you, but it's going to take a year and a half. I say, I'm in. He said, yeah, everybody says they're in. They always say they're in when they're sitting where you are. But they bail out. It takes a couple months. They'll feel better about themselves and they'll feel like they're in more control. And they'll bail out right before the really hard stuff. And he was right. I mean, it, I almost bailed out. And the way that I almost bailed out was to kill myself. I, I planned a trip because when I, when I hit that edge where I suddenly understood that I did not know if one thing about me was actually true. When I hit that and I lost my hope, everything settled down and I planned a trip to Mexico City, which I'd never been to, but it was far enough away I could guarantee that the last good thing I did was that I'd kill myself somewhere where my kids couldn't find me. The only thing maybe that I ever had done that was good. 
right? Mm -hmm. And then I got intersected by a couple friends who didn't know where I was but showed up. And that pushed me back into my relationship with Scott. So not, and, and Kim's hammering on me every day, right? She is not like letting this go. And she did, and she didn't. And I thought she would never would. But I told her when, when she, when we had that confrontation, I told her if, if we're going to do this, I need to tell you every single secret I have. And not only did she want to know every secret I had, she wanted to know details about everything that I'd been involved in, mm. including the adultery, right? Mm. And I told her everything. And it took days to do it. Mm. That had to have been grueling for both of you. It destroyed her, right? And, and she said, I'll never believe another word that comes out of your mouth the rest of your life. Mm. And she told, uh, we were talking to, about this with um, one of our kids not long ago, and she said, you know why I let your dad stay in the house? And he says, because you didn't want your kids to grow up without a father. She said, mm, that's secondary. As furious as I was, he owned it. If he had one time pointed his finger at me, he'd have been gone. Hmm. And so, you know, and I never crossed my mind to do that. Man, I'm like there. So Scott, nine months into this process every day where Kim is, when I tell her about what I'm working on with Scott, every day that I'm with him, her response is, yeah, right, whatever. Hmm. And I knew I couldn't heal her any more than I could heal myself. But I'm going to participate in, if I can find some change, this is, this is not to save the marriage, this is not to fix her, this is not to feel better about myself in that sense, I got to find some way to change. And Scott was absolutely the right person out of the yellow pages who stepped into that space. And nine months into this, he looks at me and he says, you're done. Wow. And I went, what? He said, Paul, you don't know this, but nobody works as hard as you and has stuck to it. Nobody. And it was desperation on my part and grace. And then, then Scott and I became friends over a period of years, you know. And then meanwhile, when, when that piece went down and I'm dealing with my own stuff, so do all the questions about how this is connected to God, because I grew up as a missionary kid, right. and how this is connected to my image of God and, mm -hmm. and my dad and, and the sexual abuse. What did that do? You know, so all of these little bits and pieces had to come to the surface. And I had to just say, okay, so what do I actually know or believe. So what was that process like? Because it sounds like the, the psychological, emotional, relational healing was intense with the counselor, but it sounds like the theological piece was above and beyond that. And I'm specifically curious mm -hmm. with the fact that the shack has so much autobiography in it. You said somewhere that uh, the shack is a book that asks questions we're not allowed to ask in church. So what were the questions that emerged for you? Yeah, there's a bunch of them. And this is when I was writing to my kids and people say, well, how can you have this kind of a scenario as a gift for your kids? And I'm thinking, look, this is the greatest loss a human being can experience is the loss between a parent and a child. I'm convinced. But it asks the best questions. Hmm. Where's God, right? So... <sighs> When I'm working on this as a gift for my kids, and Kim's thinking it's gonna be four to six pages, right? I'm serious, so when it got printed, she goes, you know, I, I was thinking four to six pages, right? Wow. So when I'm writing this story, because I love story, I'm asking all the questions. And this is, I think, why the book resonated as deeply as it did, because it is so human. Mm. And it is asking 
the questions like, what the crap? Where were you, right? When things were taken from me and broken. Yes. I mean, how do you fit that into sovereignty? If you're in control, are you the originator of this kind of damage? I mean, this is, is this, how could I trust you if you did this, right? So it raises that and a myriad of other questions that were part of my religious, you know, upbringing and indoctrination or whatever you want to say. So all of that had to be dismantled in order for me to then freely walk inside of it. And it required not just the relational, psychological uh, processing, but thankfully I had, I was well read. So a lot of the things that I'd already seen intellectually inside the traditions of other people outside of my tradition, Hmm. They began coming in with a great deal more connectedness to my soul as opposed to just to my mind. And uh, so now they start fitting in in a way that I actually can live it. And, and, uh, but questions were all over the map about the goodness of God, about you know, judgment and hell and wrath and how you, how you put that against the, the kindness and the goodness in it, but the relational element and the, the relationship became absolutely key. Hmm. My journey into the idea that there are three persons or the reality to me, that there are three persons in this oneness of the great dance in which we were created, right? I got driven into that question hmm. asking if men are so much obvi- more obviously screwed up than women, how come they're in charge, right? Because I'm in a hierarchical... Western Christian tradition that men dominate, mm. right? But almost all my damage came from men, mm. you know? And I know women can be damaging. There's no question about it. But you look at the world, you know, how many brothels exist in this planet for women? You know, you, you look at crime, you look at who leaves and runs, who leaves their children, right? Mm. And, and, and who starts wars and who's created all these nationalistic state in the blood of someone else, the implications of what we do are their brokenness are pretty profound. <sighs> Broken people break people. So you, you answered this in the shack, but because it's a novel, it's a narrative. So I guess I'm asking for a little bit of a proposition that you've in part explained. But um, how would you, what's your understanding of how people become whole? If a, if a broken mm. person came to you and said, tell me how my shattered life gets put back together. Wow. And, uh, you know, we grew up in a tradition, if you're anything like my history, is that we didn't know anybody could come back to healing. Our only hope was to die before we screwed it up so bad that we couldn't get in, you know. And so our salvation or our damnation was death, was related to death, right? And so we were always just trying to get out of here in some way that was acceptable. Hopefully somebody else would take us out or would get sick or something. And, um, and so the, the very concept that there could be an integration Now, then this is why formula doesn't work, but relationship does. Because relationship is respectful for the intricacy of the other. And and part of my shift theologically was to begin to realize that God had a high view of humanity, not a low one. Say what you mean by that. I grew up where the truth of your being was that you were a piece of shit. 
That's, you know, that you are totally depraved. So that God, in his mercy and kindness, reaches out to this absolutely worthless being and pours on, his, on him some grace just because of the kindness of his heart on a particular day and picks him and says, you're in, but I'm still going to send all those other ones to eternal torment. And so, but it's based on the idea that I'm separated from God and I did that. And, and now I've got to be smart enough, live long enough, and have the right language to do the magic that gets me across something that Jesus came to provide a way as an opportunity, right? So my salvation is still dependent on me. But everything is based on you're a piece of crap. Yeah. And you know? so the, what's the contrast to that? You're calling it a high view of humanity. Yeah. What's that? Where you are a very good creation before any of the brokenness. Fearful and wonderfully made. Yes. And that intricacy means that only God knows how you are hurt. And you can't compare your hurt with anyone else. You know, you can put 10 children in front of the same abuse and you'll have 10 lives go 10 totally different directions because of the uniqueness of that human being. But it's magnificent and intricate. How in the world could anybody come up with a singular formula that would put somebody back together? So this is part of the mystery, and I think the healing community is beginning and, and has understood this and, and understands it more and more, that there is no objective standing outside that is actually in the presence with the other that allows to emerge the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in, in terms of the intricacy of what it's going to take to put that person back together in an integrated sort of way. So as a, you know, an integration is a good word for me. That's where I suddenly become the same person in every situation. Hmm. Right? Because related to the word integrity. Yes. Integration and integrity. Yes. That means two sides of an equation equal each other. Yeah. Right? So that I'm not a different person in a hotel room by myself than I am with, you know, when I'm on a stage or with my grandchildren or with somebody else's children. Paul, was there a moment where you woke up and realized you were that person? Yes, 2005. Where and this is 11 years. And that's what clicked over for me. I, <clears throat> I didn't know, for me, see, and this is the uniqueness, the, the major reconstruction of the shack, the house on the inside. The major reformulation was an 11-year process. And, and it went from January 4th, when I got the phone call from Kim, to the end of 2004. And suddenly 2005 clicks over. And now it's not because life is all good. I mean, we had lost everything we possessed in 2004. We were living in a little tiny rental house. I'm working three jobs. Kim gets a job at the high school bakery two blocks away. Mm. We've got four of our six kids in 900 square feet. Right? And joy has dropped on us like a ton of bricks. Wow. Right? Because one of the biggest last fears that had to be dismantled was the fear of financial insecurity. And it required, required in the sense of God's sense of humor. But the loss of everything began, helped, helped me, us, deal with the fear that we had created in our imagination. Right? And it was this movement toward trust. So when that clicked over, I suddenly realized, oh my gosh. I'm the same person in every situation. Second, I don't have any secrets. Hmm. I mean, like, none. There is nothing Kim doesn't know. There's nothing my kids don't know. There's nothing my friends don't know. There's nothing that I can't talk about. Third, I don't have any addictions. Hmm. 
And the, the yucky ones had gone a long time. That is the porn addiction and all that kind of stuff that I was heavily controlled by in a sense that, uh, you know, and you can see where all the connectedness to my history and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that when you're disconnected between your head and your heart, it creates this vacuum where you begin to create the imagination of a relationship without taking the risk of one. <laughs> so, you know, porn is just like, you know, it's just an imagination of a relationship you can control in which you are loved unconditionally, where there's no downside or risk. Now you, you feel like a piece of crap, you know, in the midst of that, but for a moment you're allowed to right. be inside the fantasy. So, but that addiction had dropped away. And, and, the, and when I said I had no addictions, I'm talking the gold chain ones as well. Pleasing God, doing something great for the kingdom of God, <laughs> um, pleasing my wait, dad. Wait, wait, those are addictions? Oh, <laughs> huge addictions, yeah, right? Yeah. Huge drivers. And, they, and, they, and because of those addictions, we manipulate the relationships around us, all this. And yeah. so you're, you're, I'm assuming that you're saying that we, we do something great for the kingdom of God, fill in the blank, so that I will be loved. Exactly. So that I will be okay. So I'll exactly. have the Father's embrace. Exactly. And that had to be stripped away too. Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm free. And, and that was the time I realized, so this is what it's like to be a child. Mm. This is what it's like. I never was one of these. Mm. I'm going like, ah, I get to stay inside the grace of one day. Mm. And one of those little phrases that came out during this time that was one of those things that you know is true is that God doesn't heal you because he wants to use you. Mm. He heals you because he loves you. And then he invites you to play. Hmm. Right? So none of what I'm doing. In 2005, when this clicked over, is when I wrote on the train to one of my three jobs a story for my kids for Christmas because I had nothing else to give them. Wow. And that little story is called The Shack. Wow. And I made the 15 copies at Office Depot that did everything I ever wanted the book to do. And it's, it's really... Um as well as having some detractors and critics, which you referred to That's earlier, it has given people a whole new language for understanding the Trinity and the heart of the heart of the Father. And I, that is one of the most beautiful things, unanticipated, unexpected, but it has given people a language to have a conversation in their relationships about God that is not religious. So you can begin to ask some of those questions that uh -huh. can't be asked in church. Uh huh. And we have a language. People know. Uh, a friend who was down on a, on a beach in the uh, Dominican Republic. He'd done some mission stuff like that. And he he had just read The Shack. He's a pastor out of Nashville. And he had been kind of totally sideswiped by the whole thing. Mm. And he's walking along the beach. And there's a woman sitting there reading The Shack. And he says, look, we can talk shack. Mm. Right? Because it is like that. And he says, so what do you think of the book? And she says, I picked it up on the airport on my way here <laughs> and it is raising so many questions that I've got nobody to talk to. Mm. He says, well, I'll talk to you. They spent two days wow. working their way through talking. And she says, you know, my whole connection with God was a six year sexual abuse by a priest. Mm. Everything I know about God. Mm. And she says, the reason I come down here is I come down here because I can only manage 10 months out of the year. And I got to be down here four to six weeks in order to regather my world because I'm a business person and I got to go back wow. and do it. And she said, that's why I'm here. And, and he said, he said, Paul, it was the sweetest, gentlest introduction to something that has been true for her. And she didn't know. And, um, 
so he's this is this last summer he's telling me he's bawling like a baby i'm bawling like a baby and and he said so i hadn't been there in five years he says this is five years ago and so i i went back this year he said and i took my family because i've told him about this woman and i've told and i told my church and i did a guidepost article about it and and, and so and we go back for vacation five years later wow. right and so we're there on the beach and we're laughing and we're going like this is the beach right and then the wind a storm's coming in and and he says i'm holding this little piece of paper that tells me I can go snorkeling with these guys and the wind picks it up catches it takes it down the, the beach and he says so me and my son who's 13 he says we start chasing this little piece of paper and it almost becomes this this game where you're not allowed to grab it with your hands you have to jump on it right <laughs> so we're like a quarter half mile down the beach chasing this thing because every time we get close to it it gets flipped up by the wind finally he says the wind calms down. I jump, land on it, and I go, aha. The woman is sitting there right in front of me reading Crossroads. Wow. The new book. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, Paul, she looks at me and bursts into tears. And she says, I thought you were an angel. Hmm. And he goes, I thought you were an angel. <laughs> because it was, you know, in that process of talking about these things it had changed him mm. right so here there five years later you know that's kind of one of those things you go like this is a god who not only has relentless affection but climbs inside the details of our lives and just says okay let me tell you let me show you what play looks like mm. right mm. wow thank you so much you my final so question is we have about two minutes left um Talk to me about, you've said several times now, enough grace for the day. That's oh a big gosh. part of how you walk with God. I told you that 2005 suddenly, I mean, joy had dropped on us like a ton of bricks. And in 2005, I'm talking to my friends. And, and by the way, that was an essential piece is to let other human beings in, not just a therapist, right? Mm -hmm. But guys for me, because I'd never had a relationship with guys. No, you can't trust anybody, right? So that became a really significant piece for me over those 11 years. And so I'm talking to the guys about, you know, look, and actually I kept it a secret for like, you know, a surprise, but I, I just didn't know how to put words to it because joy had become a constant companion. Hmm. That had never happened to me and I didn't pray for it and I didn't ask it. I didn't even know if it was possible. Hmm. I'm going like, finally, I'm talking to Thad, who's a friend of mine and we're at breakfast and I said, it sounded like me, Thad and joy sitting at the table and I finally am that I'm you know I'm kind of nodding my head over toward the empty chair going like I don't know what to, how to say this but joy has become a constant companion hmm. not an occasional acquaintance and he goes well what changed and this is six months into 2005 right okay I went oh my gosh you know what changed I started to live inside the grace of just one day when I became a child, I started to just stay inside the grace of one day. I wasn't spending all my life and energy on things that didn't exist, which I call future tripping. Hmm. You know, we create these imaginations that don't exist and we drag them into our present. And then we try to control our world and everybody in it so that the things that we're really afraid of don't happen. And we do that because we're afraid and fear and love are opposites. So the degree there's fear in my life or control, which is a response to fear, to that degree, I don't know yet how much I'm loved. Mm. And finally, I was a child. Children stay inside the grace of a day until 
they need to adapt some survival mechanisms yeah. and are and are communicated that trust isn't isn't safe. Yeah, they don't know anything else. No, so joy became a constant companion and continues to be a regardless of how rough life can be and throws at you. There is and and when I was writing about this and telling my friends, I realized joy had never left. When Jesus came, joy came. It wasn't joy that was an occasional acquaintance. And I wrote about it in a blog and I said at the end, joy, I read Joy's blog and Joy wrote, in 2005, Paul started to become a constant companion rather than an occasional acquaintance. Mm. See, it was me that was running away into imaginations that don't exist. Mm. This arduous work of, of the reintegration of the soul Anything more than one day at a time is too much. And we're not designed to live in, in any day except today. Hmm. One day's worth of grace at a time. Everything else held loosely. And, and the scripture is, sufficient to the day is the grace thereof. Another one is, take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough issues of its own. And another one is, take every empty, vain imagination captive that raises itself up against the knowing of God. Hmm. Right? And those things together... And this movement that says, you know what? I think I can trust, at least for today. At least for today. Till I go to sleep, you know? And we're just gonna see what happens inside the grace of the day. I don't have to control it. My identity's not in what I do anymore. Wow. It's in who I am. Well, thank you. You're well, the, the grace of this day for me is this conversation, and I yeah. hope someday we can have a part two. So thank you very much. You're welcome, Michael. Thank you. This has been a brilliant production of Restoring the Soul Radio. Check us out online at www.restoringthesoul.com.